welcome to episode 94 of the False Neutral Podcast for October of 2019. I'm Pete Garrett and Eric are with me as always. Say hello, guys. Howdy, howdy. Hello, guys. We're almost to episode 100. Almost. Yeah, yeah well, going a month, an uh, episode per month, we're still six months away. So. <laughs> yeah. Sometime in the spring, I guess. Mm-hmm. Speaking of milestones, uh, Hooniverse just recently had its 10th anniversary. Jeff Glucker asked each one of us that were longtime contributors to uh, kind of write up a retrospective of the last 10 years and what we had been doing and where we were 10 years ago. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, go to Hooniverse.com. I did mention the podcast and put our pictures in there and pointed out that we were the last of the four Hooniverse Podcast Network podcast still in existence. So <laughs> we've outlived the Hooniverse Podcast, Camden Tubbed, and DFL. So there you go. Yeah, and I like that picture that uh, Jeff posted from a long time ago where there's the caption on the – it was like a TV bit, and on the caption it said, like, Internet Bluger. Bluger, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After all this time, Bluger still makes me laugh. Yeah. Should we jump into a workshop? Update? Okay. Uh, Garrett, what you been up to? Well, I posted some stuff on our Facebook page about some small updates to the RZ350. So I had completely finished the airbox for it. Um, So I actually, just before jumping onto this call, uh, cleaned a few little pieces so I can install the airbox permanently on the RZ350. I printed some uh, flexible couplers to go between the carburetor, uh, the carburetors and the airbox. So I put some pictures of those. Those turned out pretty cool. Um, So it's a 3D print material that's just flexible, kind of like rubber. And so it's neat for making couplers and things like that. So now I can connect the original lower airbox piece to the carburetors. And uh, mount my new airbox top to all that. And so that'll be done. I also finished making a throttle cable. Because remember, on the last podcast, I was talking about how um, nobody makes an off-the-shelf throttle cable for an RZ350 that utilizes the stock twist throttle, the original oil injection, because it's cable-operated, but with aftermarket key and carburetors, which is kind of surprising because, you know, 28 millimeter key and carburetors are a very nice upgrade for the RZ, which came original with 26 millimeter Makunis. Um, and they're really popular carburetors on all sorts of two stroke applications, including like Yamaha Banshees. Uh, but there's just no good off the shelf, uh, throttle cable for it the original carburetors use a a push and a pull cable and so there's like a linkage where there's only really one um, cable that opens both carburetors and with aftermarket carburetors it requires uh, two pull cables Um, but i was able to source a throttle cable for a european spec rz350 and kind of uh, adapt it to this one. So I ended up having to 3D print um, this little like junction piece where 
there's one pole cable and it connects to three cables inside this housing. Two of them open the carburetors and one of them opens the oil injection system. So I made a new little plastic connector piece inside that housing um, based off of like how much pull I needed for the carburetors, how much throw I needed um, and a couple other things. But I was able to make a throttle cable work for like 25 bucks. I put together a new throttle cable instead of and the so, two hundred dollars that uh, yeah, exactly. whoever it was wanted. Yeah, so Wicked Motorsports, I called them up, and you know because they do a lot of RZ three fifty stuff, and I thought for sure they would have a throttle cable just ready to go. They could sell me, and they kind of do, but I'm pretty sure that they do something like I did because they required my original throttle cable. Plus, you know, $250 to um, to be able to, like, sell me one. So I think what they do is they, they use a couple of the original, um, like, elbows off of the original throttle cable and kind of uh, build a cable that works for the application, kind of like I did. Um, but I did it, you know, for $25 versus $250. So I was able to save a little bit of money there. And, and it works out super slick. It's cool because I can just, you know, now, hey, if anybody needs an RZ350 throttle cable, just let me know and I can send one out. Since, carburetors. I'm guessing that since uh, the reason you couldn't find what you wanted is that if most people are putting bigger carburetors on, they're just automatically going to uh, premix. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, the easiest thing to do is, yeah, just abandon the oil injection and go to premix. But like, but that's a pain in the ass if on a street bike. Yeah, no, no, no it sucks yeah. on a street bike. And like, you know, I'm going through a lot of effort to to do things exactly the way that I think they should be done, not at a matter of convenience, but you know, it's oftentimes for the opposite. It's just like this air box. Like, I don't want to put pod filters on it because I think it wouldn't fit the look of the bike. I want to like you know, have an original looking air box that flows enough air and same with the throttle cable. Like I don't want to abandon the premix. Like that's super cool to have still. So, and also I want to keep the original throttle housing, um, for the twist throttle, but I also, you know, want a little bit bigger carburetor on it. So it worked out perfect. Now I have, you know, key and carburetors, which, you know, nobody will, Unless you know an RZ350, nobody will know that those can carburetors didn't come on the bike because they look really similar to the Makunis that were on originally. And unless you like really know uh, RZs, um, but it just it all looks like it did from the factory, which is kind of what I wanted it to do. So um, now that the airbox is done, the throttle cable is done. Those were the two parts that really needed a lot of thought and and design and engineering and printing. Uh, so those parts are down and now really I can just like put the last few things on it and finally start it up. So it is very close to being done. That's exciting. Oh God, it is. I've been working on this one now since I think April. Um, let's see, I rebuilt the engine. Um, I rebuilt the engine in April, so uh, probably next month it'll be done. Not my quickest turnaround on a motorcycle build, but you know, I did a lot of things to this one. So you also have a family and a career and going to school and everything else. I mean, it's like, that's true. You know, this is not your full-time job. 
Yeah. Those uh, other motorcycles that I sold in April, the RD350 and the Suzuki Titan, I was able to pump those ones out pretty quick, both with engine rebuilds and everything. Uh, but it's just right now I'm busier than I've ever been. So it's hard to make any progress, especially when it requires like actually sitting down and thinking about it and designing something. What your comment was about, you know, wanting to do it just right, that slows it down. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like I was going to say, an engine rebuild, it takes it takes a lot of work, but not a lot of thought, really. It's just a puzzle and you put the puzzle together. But like the airbox, you know, you have to design it around so many other things and you have to think about so many variables. Uh, and then same with that throttle cable. There's so many measurements to take just to make it all work exactly right. Um, yeah, and those things just take a lot of time to do. So um, those are done. I uh, got the the fuel tank out and it's ready to go onto the motorcycle. So actually... I'll be able to put the fuel tank on, um, put the windscreen on, and it's basically going to look complete just aside from little tiny odds and ends um, here in the next couple days. So uh, it's almost there. And then I can start on some other motorcycle projects because <laughs> <laughs> I've got plenty of them. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. I think that you've done some work, too, uh, Pete. I have. Uh as you guys may remember, I bought a Vulcan TIG setup from Harbor Freight like eight months ago, something like that. And I went out and I got a gas bottle for it, bottle of Argon. And for some reason, I was just really, really intimidated by the idea of setting this up and using it. Just because unlike a MIG gun, which is kind of just like, you know, an electric marker, it there are so many things with TIG as far as your your stick out, your cup size, your angle, flow rate. Your there, There's just so many variables to get wrong that I was just convinced that I was never going to be able to do it and why try. And I finally got to the point on, on the Boltaco, I've got it in the jig, but I've got it set up so that it's bolted in through the swing arm mount. And I, I'm ready to put the swing arm on it. So I need to figure out a way to align it all and get it set up using some other place on the frame to secure it so that I can free up those holes. to. Because what I need to do is put the swing arm in perfectly perpendicular to the frame and figure out exactly, is it symmetrical? Is one side farther away from the center line than the other? So I can I can center the rear wheel accurately in the back of the swing arm. In order to do that, I needed to get another fitting for my frame jig, which I got from ChopSource. I ordered their little mid-mount kit, but it's just the the ends and the clamp. And what they tell you to do is to take two pieces of two-by-two square steel tube, weld those together perfectly perpendicular to each other so it can drop in between the rails and you've got a crossbar but you have to weld a nut onto the bottom and then you have to weld these two together. And I thought no matter how goobery it looks, if I can just get these stuck together so they don't move, it's not like it's going to go down the road or anything. I was like the first one, just putting the nut on the bottom where nobody's ever going to say it looked horrible, but it, it stuck and I got it accurately on there. I made a couple little changes and I, I did okay. 
It doesn't look <laughs> horrible, but I did about three passes. I did a root and then about, you know, two more passes yeah. and kind of deliberately left, left it there to kind of melt the root because the root was pretty chunky. So I got better as I was going and I'm not sure I would pass any kind of a, an inspection or test with it, but it's not going anywhere. Yeah. TIG welding is a steep learning curve, but, and it's true, like you said, it just requires a lot and a lot of practice. Um, and some good tips are always helpful. And I don't know if you've YouTubed um, TIG welding, but there's this guy that does a YouTube channel called Welding Tips and Tricks. And oh, I watch it constantly. Oh, yeah. So it's like mainly yeah. TIG he, Like, it's great. He is, um, you know, He's tolerable to watch on like a lot of YouTube videos, but also like the information that you get is just concise. It's helpful. Um, I really like that channel. So there are, there are some other welders. They're pretty cringy. Yeah. He's, he's very, very knowledgeable. Yeah. He pretty much gives you the fact there isn't a whole lot of, well, they say to do it this way, but I've always done it this way. So this is the way I do it. It's like right. he, he knows why he's telling you the things he's telling you so yeah and whenever i watch his videos it makes me want to go out and tig weld oh it does like it does try to practice whatever he was just talking about and i can never ever do it like he makes it look so easy and i'm like oh man if i just do it just like that my welds will look just like his (laughs) and then you go out and try to do it it's like okay i'd better keep practicing and he does gorgeous welds you know it gets all done and they're just so pretty yeah, <laughs> it's, it's amazing how good that can. That's how easy that is, and how good it looks when you've done it. I don't know what yeah. twenty thousand hours in your life. Well, uh, my friend's dad is like a welder by trade. He's certified. That's what he does for a living. Um, and and I watch him TIG weld, and he'll just like feed the rod through his fingers. Uh, and and like I, you know, you can't really like describe it over the air, but he has this way where he'll TIG weld and just like slowly feed the, the welding rod through his fingers at like this constant rate. So it's not like starting and stopping. And it's so just got a like, little caterpillar drive in his, in his fingers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just remarkable to watch it. And, and, and I try to do that and I always weld my welding rod to the part every single time. And then my tungsten, I weld to the part every time. Yeah. I, I go I, through a lot of tungsten just because I have to resharpen it like every 12 seconds. <laughs> well, yeah, I had to do that a lot too. You know, if, when, when you grind your tungsten, like you're supposed to do it. So the grinding marks go like mm-hmm. um, longitudinally Towards the point, uh, to yeah. the tungsten. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. I had some, some starting issues like starting the arc and then just simply changing the way that I was grinding that tungsten helped the the start of the arc so much. So I I had to actually break out the grinder and the cutoff saw, you know, cutoff tool, because where I was going to mount these mid-mount brackets on my frame, I was looking, okay, I need a flat spot, but it's got the old uh, peg mounts welded to the frame there. And they would be totally wrong. I wasn't planning on putting the foot pegs in the stock location. So I did the the hipster bike builder thing and just got the cutoff wheel and the grinder and and just used the angle grinder for like an hour, just chopping yeah. all that stuff, smoothing it down, getting it all fairly smooth. It, I think it probably needs a little 
little filler and some sanding to look really nice, but I got both sides off. So at least I have a flat spot that I can bolt these other brackets to, to hold the frame parallel to the jig. So I can, mm-hmm. I can secure it that way. So yeah, that was yep. a major undertaking. <clears throat> and yeah, does your TIG welder have a foot control yeah. for the amperage? Okay. Yeah. There are so many cheaper ones that don't have it. Yeah. And everything that I read was the learning curve is just so much higher when you can't, you know, dial in and dial. And your your welds will never look as nice. The beginning and ending of your welds are always going to have little pits and puddles in them. If yeah. if you just cut it off without lowering the amperage gradually as you pull away, you'll never get a nice finish on it. So I was like, I just want to buy one once. I don't want to buy a starter and then immediately yeah. get frustrated and want to buy a nicer one. So yeah. the... I have to say the the Vulcan line actually gets pretty good reviews. I know it's a yeah. Harbor Freight product, but it's kind of their top of the line. And they're actually mm-hmm. coming out with some stuff that's actually not industrial commercial quality, but still really good for, you know, yeah, just home use. So Yes, yes, for sure. A couple episodes back, I forget what episode it was, but uh, we had somebody ask us, what was your wild card bike something that you'd like to have that's just kind of been on the peripheral interest would like to have and i always said i would like to have an aramaki single and i had someone reach out to me and offer me a free aramaki single frame that was hanging in his barn he's like hey you could do you know you're, you're doing one bike from a frame up if you want a starting point there's no title to it, but you can have it for free. And he was in Illinois, and I found a uh, a shipper who, because I did it through that, what is it, U-Ship, where, you know, they bid. And it ended up being mm-hmm. like $120 for the bid and the fee for them and everything. So for 120 bucks, yeah, send it to me. And I got it, and it's a 74 the last year they made the horizontal four-stroke singles. It's not actually called a sprint. The last two years were just called the 350SX and 350SS. They made a scrambler and a street version. Really, the high and low pipe were the only difference between them. And they made a lot of changes those last two years. They went to an electric starter, left side shift, uh, 12-volt electrics, a full cradle frame. They did not build a lot of them. I have an issue of, uh, I want to say classic mechanics, but that's not it. Uh, motorcycle classics. I forget what the number is that they, I think they quoted both years, both models, less than 12,000 were made. Yeah. Aramaki parts in general are getting really scarce. All of the things for those last two years are kind of un- unobtainable. I mean, because Aramaki made a whole lot of little small changes along the way, and they had a lot of very low-volume models that they did unique, special things with. You know, they ran a Magneto on one, and they they there's all kinds of little differences in tanks and stuff like that. So it's really hard to find parts for them. I am not going to ever have the time and the money to build a stock Aramaki. So I was like, well, what can I do with this frame? When I was working on the Boltaco, the first front end I bought was in Suzuki 850 
L because somebody had one locally on Craigslist that was like ridiculously cheap. So I was like, okay, I'll try that. Well, when, once I got it all together, I realized geometry was off. It was a leading axle cruiser fork that I wasn't going to have any trail. It was going to be really sketchy. So I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So I went out and looked through the microfiches for Suzuki's and realized that a 1982 GS750E front fork didn't have the leading axle. The axle was on the center line of the fork and it would bolt up. It was the same length. It was the same diameter. Use same axle. So it's like, yeah, this will, this will be a, a bolt on replacement for the ones I have. And it's going to bring my wheel back enough that I'll have decent amount of trail. So I went out on eBay and I bought a set that was really surprisingly cheap. Went back and looked at it when they said it was deli- It was at my doorstep. I hadn't gotten home to get the package yet. And I looked at the little eBay notice that said, Hey, your package has been delivered. Your mm-hmm. 1983 GS 750 forks have been. I was like, Oh no. Uh, <laughs> 83 was totally different. They were 37, not 35 millimeters. They had, uh, air assist on them, different triple clamp and trees. And it was like, no. Okay. So I threw them in the corner. Yeah. And I was like, well, I wonder if this would work for these. So I, the weird thing is someone had put like regular ball bearings, not like the loose steering bearings, but like a set of non-directional like crank bearings Yeah. in as the, there was no front end on it when I got it, but it had sealed ball bearings instead of tapered roller bearings or directional thrust yeah. bearings in it. And it was like, Oh my goodness. I can't believe how sketchy this must have been. I'm surprised they didn't just beat themselves into junk immediately. But anyways, so I knocked those out. The inside diameter is exactly the same as the Boltaco. And when I bought an 83 GS 750 triple clamp, the stem is exactly the same bearings as the GS 850 L ones that I had. So I have to do a little machine work to this to turn it down like two millimeters. But once I do that, it'll be exactly the same as my other one. And I could actually interchange either of these front ends on either one. So I was like, Oh, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I was looking around, I was like, what kind of wheels would I want to put on this? And I was like, well, I'd really like to put, you know, something modern 17 inch wheels on it. I was going to go with bandit 400 wheels which are 17 inch front and rear. Mm -hmm. And I bought the front wheel for like $59. It's in perfect shape. Got a couple of little dings in the paint, but it's perfectly true and square and not dented up at all. It's like, okay. So I did some research and I found the 400 bandit had a four by 17. I thought that's probably a little wide. So the 600 Katana from like 92 to 95 had the exact same pattern wheel in a 350. Okay. So I got a 300 front, 350 rear. I, that, that would work. So I've gotten to the point of just mocking them up, the the wheels and the forks. And I don't know how it will work, but yeah, it's at least doable. I haven't seen any real showstoppers yet. Uh, fortunately, I got the swing arm with the frame, so I didn't have to worry about trying to find a swing arm. So... I don't know what I'm going to do as far as the rest of it. All the, all the 
other part everything is really expensive and really hard to find yeah and uh it's a weird 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 frame they made it it's a full cradle frame but they actually used a lot of the components the castings and stuff from the old spine frame aramaki singles that were just suspended and didn't have any down tubes on them so it's kind of weird the cool thing about it is it's got a huge engine bay in it. You can put there. There are very few things that I, I don't think you could fit in there. Yeah, I'm sure you could fit like a Triumph 500 twin mm-hmm. Daytona motor in there. So I, I don't know what I'm going to do. It certainly is not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I'm like, okay, I have enough that it's going to pique my interest. Yeah, it's not going to get an Aramaki motor. Probably will not get an Aramaki tank and seat and everything what it will eventually be i don't know it's going to get pushed in the corner until i'm done with the one i'm working on well it sounds like it'll be a good project to kind of practice welding and you know build something up it'll probably take you some time but well it may be 10 years before i do anything with it so yeah 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 then we'll see it on bike xf (laughs) yeah (laughs) eric what did you get done on your xs so finally got around to getting a different uh, valve spring compressor. I looked at one on uh, Mike's XS site and I'm like, eh, that's like 60 bucks. I'm like, eh, let me see what else is out there. So I found what I thought was or what appeared to be the exact same thing on Amazon for like 18 bucks. I'm like, well, 18 bucks versus 50 or 60 bucks. That's a no brainer, right? Yeah. Um, we're, we're, I guess we start the, we start the story at. Sometimes, even though you might only use a tool once, maybe twice, don't necessarily buy the cheapest thing. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it worked fine, um, other than the little metal piece that forms a T-handle that you slid through didn't exactly have like a ball detent on it. So if you were at any kind of angle and you let go, it automatically fell out, and then you had to go onto the ground and pick it back up and slide it in. Yeah. Anyway, so that was a, that was a lot of fun. Um, the exhaust valves came out without too much effort, or the exa- the uh, was able to get the exhaust springs um, compressed and able to get the retainers out, and that wasn't a problem. It took, I don't know, 15, 18, 20 minutes, something like that. Um, the, the biggest issue was just getting it so that the um, piece of metal, the, whatever, the, the cup that you sit on top of the valves didn't slide around, so it would actually like, push down straight. So anyways... Mm-hmm. Um, get to the intake side and I about threw things. Um, so I'm cranking, cranking, cranking. And, and the spring is just not compressing at all. I mean, I've got it. Everything's lined up and it's good. And then it just, I'm putting all kinds of force and twisting this down and it's just not going. Then all of a sudden, I don't know if it was stuck or whatever, but it just releases. And I was, you hear ping and there go the retainers. <laughs> No. On one, and I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I found, I found on that one, I found one, uh, and I'm like, all right. Well, there's half. I'm like, I look for a few minutes. Like, all right. Well, let me just get the other one. Other one, same exact thing. Just, oh, no. abs- just like cranking, cranking, cranking. Ping. Yep. Those are things I find. again found half it. Then ended up finding up the other, uh, the other half of one. Like a day later, um, when my friend Jamie came over. So you can now um, put one, so anyways, one valve back in. <laughs> well, I can I can put 
three in, but I did order a new set of retainers because it was like 10 bucks. I'm like, then they're Yamaha OEM ones. They were like two bucks a piece. I'm like, fine. Okay. No problem. Um, but what was funny is my friend Jamie came, came over and he's looking at the head and we're just kind of having a look inside and a couple marks in the, I think it was in the intake port and just, okay. And looking at stuff and he's looking at the intake port and he, he's like, I don't want to say he's in, he, he's in horror, but like, like, holy crap, there is so much room for improvement and airflow in these things. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. And he's like, no, 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 no. You, you got a Dremel. You just do this. And do this. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just, I'm intending to just to put this back together. So like, no, 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 here, just like clean, finish cleaning this up, give it to me and, I, and, and I'll do it. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's like because I can go from like 26 to maybe 28 horsepower right. with like cleaning up the intake port. But if you look at them, um, they really are pretty. There's a there's a big lip on the on it uh, on the intake port where just like if you just clean it up a little bit, it would probably make a huge difference in airflow. So, yeah. Um, um, so are you so able yes. to find new retainers? Uh, ordered new ones. So. Okay. Um, I mean, I've got three sets, but just from, you know, either the one, the, the exhaust side and then the intake side, I found two. But um, I just figured, well, you know, at 10 bucks, who cares? I'll just throw some new ones on. Uh, so I got to finish cleaning up the the uh, cleaning up the head a little bit in the ports because for only having not even a th- 1100 miles on it, it's pretty carboned up in there in the in the chamber and in the um especially in the exhaust valve uh, or exhaust port. So I think I sent, I think I put some, uh, some pictures that Pete, if you want to throw them up when you do the post or whatever, um, like I threw some posts up in our Slack chat. So. Yeah. And I was really surprised. I thought it looked like there was a lot of carbon or something on the valve seats themselves. Like, is that the reason it wasn't getting compression it was just because it had so much crud on the valve seats. I- I think so, because as I have taken a brass brush to it and cleaned it up, the the seats themselves appear to be in pretty good shape. But, yeah, I think there's just so much crap built up in the chambers. And and like you say, probably got on the on the seats where they couldn't seal all the way that. um, I've I've seen a lot of pretty high mileage uh, engines that had a lot of carbon in them. And they were still like shiny on the seats where the -hmm. the valves in the seats were were constantly contacting each other and yours are like kind of black and gritty black. yeah yep yeah so got the valve lapping tools so that'll be the other thing to do is just lap the valves in there real good and, uh hopefully in the next few weeks um should have that uh, done and then you can start throwing it all together again so well the good news is when you get this all done you will be the proud owner of an access 400 i mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah um and there'll be about a foot and a half of snow on the ground too. So yeah. uh, I was going to say, I had intended to make way more progress with this, but September ended up coming and going really fast. And I know a couple weekends I was pretty busy with some stuff, but just like, it just seemed like this whole, the whole month of September just disappeared. So um, I got, I felt like I got really behind on this thing. And I just, I just, as I said a couple times, I just want to, get this thing together. So maybe next year I can actually get around to writing it a little bit. Yeah. Um, so it'd be nice anyways. Yeah. Oh, cool. Did you guys see the, uh, as we're recording this, it came out yesterday, I think the, uh, the new street triple RS from triumph. 
No, I hadn't seen it. No. I was so, going to ask you guys what new bikes you'd heard of. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, they're listening at 166 kilos dry. So that's roughly 365 pounds dry. So yeah. call it under 400 pounds with fluids. Um, 123 PS, which is metric horsepower. So let's call it 125 horsepower. And I think it's like 56 or 58 foot pounds of torque. Yeah. Um, full Olin suspension. And I've seen the pictures and I was rewatching a 44 teeth video of the, um, triumph speed twin the other day. And they were talking about the, how well they're built and, and just the attention to detail. And as I was looking at the photos today and like, they are doing a really, really amazing job of building, you know, like little, just little touches and stuff. And so it's pretty, pretty impressive. And yes, it's a mid, you know, mid-sized, uh, 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 naked bike. And they're going to, I think it's like 12, six, 12, five, 12, six for it. But when you look at the components, like, uh, yes, it's a lot of money, but oof. That's, yeah. I don't want, it's a reasonable value for money, at least on paper, right? So, yeah. now this is yeah. still basically the, the, like the engine and frame stuff are still the same as the, as what they had. This isn't an all new ground up. It's a highly, it's a highly refreshed because the body, the styling is, is all new. It's got different headlights on it now, which are way more aggressive looking and way more tasteful than sort of those cat's eye. I, I would, I would, I'm looking at the picture of it and I, I would agree it's a whole lot more attractive, but I'm looking at the engine and frame thinking I, it, it's not like they completely re-engineered this. No, the, the, the engine though, I'm going to say is significantly changed because it's based okay. off the 765 that they're, yeah, 765 that they're doing for Moto 2. Okay. So casing's a little different, stronger cranks and rods and things like that. So, uh, all the stuff they learned on in developing that motor or translating down into into this bike for the engine. So, yeah. um, but I'm just sitting there thinking 125 horsepower in a 400 pound bike. That's yeah. going to be an absolute riot, especially yeah. with all on suspension too. Yep. Yeah. You know, because it's like the FC09 is a fun engine and it's light, but the suspension on the FC09 is just as appalling. Uh, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, plus they don't have that much power either. Yeah, that and it's a great looking bike too. Well, and yesterday Kawasaki unwrapped the new 2020 Ninja 650, which is a little bit of a restyle, and I forget it's 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 got a couple of new enhancements, but the but the big news is it has uh, integration with your smartphone. So it's got oh, really? like a data logger and stuff for your for your smartphone that it 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 talks to your an app on your phone. I'm not even sure what it does, but it seems to be a big deal to Kawasaki. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I imagine you know sooner than later, motorcycles and cars, for that matter, aren't even going to have keys. If your phone is just Bluetooth paired to your motorcycle, you'll be able to just walk up and start it without having to fumble with anything yeah, some, i mean some some cars their key is literally a credit card and yeah funny enough that used to be a thing for japanese bikes way back in the 80s and early 90s yeah you literally had like this credit card thing you put in for the ignition but and i know ducati and i think was it bmw or ktm are also doing like keyless 
uh, keyless yeah. ignition. Yeah. Um, and also, isn't the Vipillin, is that a keyless ignition too? The, that Husqvarna thing, the 701? It wouldn't surprise me if it was. I don't know, but that yeah, seems like I the kind of is. thing that they would want to do with that bike for the. Because you wouldn't want something gauche like a key flapping around know, you know, right? from 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 hipster coffee bar to hipster coffee bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think Ducati is making a super naked mm-hmm. the, uh, with the V4 motor. So that should be pretty interesting to see and how it competes with Aprilia. Yep. Tuana. Yeah. Um, yeah. If if you go out to the Kawasaki website, they have on their on their main page, they had uh three set three countdown clocks. One of them was to yesterday, and they introduced the the new six fifty uh a couple of side by sides, a utility side by side, some kind of really radical. It's the KRX. 1000 uh super long travel sport side by side and a new uh watercraft then they have a countdown timer to the tokyo motor show on the 23rd of this month uh and they've got two bikes under wraps for that because if you go out there now they've got the ones from yesterday unwrapped in the picture three of the four they introduced yesterday were you know side by sides in watercraft but there's five bikes that they're introducing between now and the end of the month. Two of them on the 23rd at the Tokyo Motor Show, and technically it's next month. On November 5th at ICMA, they've got three bikes they're going to introduce. Rumor has it, and I don't know how much I trust this rumor, but one of those five bikes is going to be the ZX25R, which mm-hmm. is their four-cylinder 250 sport bike. Estimated that- price somewhere between sixty-seven and seventy-seven hundred dollars. Yeah, I heard nine grand floated around in an earlier rumor. It's going to sure. have upside-down forks. It's going to have you know uh, nineteen thousand RPM redline. It's it's supposedly going to. It's being built for the Indonesian market. They've got so much invested in it. They're going to try and sell it everywhere. Yeah, uh, so this is like be, a track oriented. Yeah, it's 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 going to be a real hard edge sports bike, kind of like the 250 two strokes and the 250 four cylinders were in the 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. So I'm very curious whether that's actually going to come to North America or not, because we have never gotten a 250 four cylinder. If they do it, if they if they do a little bit bigger motor at 300, and then so they could run it for the uh, World Superbike Sub Championship for the 300 CC class, then I can see that selling in the U.S. and other places um, because it's because for, for you know for like Moto America and up in Canada well, they have a series that might work for it and stuff like that. So they're saying the t- the 250 cc version is going to have more power than any of the 300 twins. Hmm. That that they're saying they're floating numbers anywhere from 45 horsepower to 60 horsepower. And you could still run a bike that displacement in the 300 cc class, right? Cuz you can run a smaller displacement just not exceeding so- 300. 
And considering that this is being built for countries that have 250 CC licensing and tax limits, I can't imagine that they would rebalance the engine for a different displacement and, and re-engineer the thing as a 300. It's possible they would. I would be really surprised if they put that much effort into it. Cause then that would mean different, uh, Euro emission certifications for it and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So the only reason I was thinking that is that because the what was the Ninja three hundred used to be the two fifty, and then they bumped up the displacement on the bike without really changing anything else. The four hundred obviously is a completely different engine, but um, right. So I was just thinking they well, could do some similar similar there. Well, I know that that's one of the reasons that Suzuki kept the GSX two fifty R at two fifty was they didn't want to invest in emissions testing and they had built the whole engine to run smoothly at 250 cc's and they were afraid that if they didn't put the same amount of effort into a new crank and everything for 300 that they'd have something that was going to be really buzzy yeah. and they one of the one of the strengths of that bike is it's down on power but it's incredibly smooth and in a lot of the markets where that's being sold, uh, smoothness and fuel economy are really important because people are limited in the horsepower that they can have. Right. Yeah. You know, if you, uh, the British A2 licensing and stuff like that, they, they can only get so much horsepower. So, and they said they, they don't sell enough in, the, in North America to make that something that was worth doing. It would be really cool to me. To have it a true 250 because there is such a heritage of really radical 250 four cylinder super sport bikes from the 80s. So maybe it's old man syndrome, but I look at it and I was like, I'd really like to be able to say it's a 254. Yeah. That would be really cool. So yeah, that'd be fun to ride. That'd be a ride. Red Bull straight rhythm was on Saturday, and I'm sure that you guys probably didn't watch it. No, but... I did not. <laughs> um straight rhythm is this really cool event that they do every year where it's a quarter mile drag race on dirt bikes um side by side over uh you know various jumps uh doubles triples and whoop sections um and it's just it's super exciting and this year it was two stroke only so in past years they did a lot of two strokes but they still had um four stroke racing classes this year all two strokes and it's neat because it brings out um a little bit of everybody from the motocross world there's the you know current supercross champion um a lot of retired guys uh some you know, people that retired, you know, a couple decades ago and then also um, like off road riders. And it brings out a little bit of everybody. They've got a 125 CC class, a 250 CC class. And then this year is the first uh, where they had at least two people running 500 CC two stroke uh, motorcycles. And one of those people was Travis Pastrana, who, uh, he actually raced Supercross briefly, but really got famous doing freestyle motocross. Right. He's the guy that was the first to land a backflip in competition. Well, in true Travis Pastrana form, he uh, did this straight rhythm event. And there is one of the jumps where during competition, he backflipped each time he ran. So it's a <laughs> best of three runs. And the first run 
not only did he backflip, but he still won the race against a like current professional racer who did not backflip. Uh, it just goes to show you, like, Travis Pastrana is probably the most talented person to ever ride a dirt bike. Uh, but it, just a riot to watch. Um, Ken Roxon, uh, who is a supercross racer, won the 250cc class. Um, but it's a pretty, pretty neat event. And it's kind of cool that they did all two strokes this year. So they had this big kind of 90s theme to it all. Uh, so I feel like Radwood would have really appreciated the <laughs> whole vibe of the event. So, yeah, pretty cool. Um, I always look forward to watching that and it definitely delivered. Um, also, you guys, at least Eric, I'm sure you saw Mark Marquez um, had a violent crash uh, in that last MotoGP race, but uh, clinched the world championship. I understand. Yep, Eric. he actually ended up winning the. He actually ended up winning the race. Uh, yeah. Last lap pass against Quartararo. I haven't watched the race yet, but I uh, read through the through the race summary and some of the highlights. And yeah, I mean that was his crash. I think it was on Fridays. Well, who knows? Given time zones, but whatever. It would have what would have been like FP one or FP two. Um, yeah, the the photos of that just blew literally blew up everywhere. Yeah, yeah it's wild because he was had a this... thousand pieces. Yeah, this just horrific high side. And it's funny because there's these pictures of him like upside down, you know, probably five or six feet in the air, his motorcycle, you know, several feet away from him in the air, uh, just this horrific crash, but then went on to win the race and yeah. clenched his fourth GP uh, world championship and eighth overall world championship. So, um, yeah, fourth, four out of the last six. Yeah, four out of the last six. Yeah, yeah I think, four, I think right. fourth MotoGP and then eight overall world titles. So, and he's a, such a young guy, too. Just a phenomenal he's race. Six. Yeah, I mean, he will, I mean, he's on track to replace Rossi as the go. So, yeah, he's going. So, yeah. um, it's funny as it was a very old school Marquez kind of crash because early in his career, he was kind of famous for like some really massive tumbles and just like, like the, the the big one, the, the kind of the famous one was at Mugello, where he had a get off at 204 miles an hour, Ooh, 206 miles goodness. an hour, and walked walked away from it. Yeah, so, yeah, that was he. He's smartened up in the last couple of years, or not smartened up, but been not not crashing as much. So that yeah. when you saw that, you were like, "Ooh, yeah." Who was it that in the 80s was was kind of Kevin the, Schwantz? Yeah, Kevin Schwantz always won or crashed. I mean, he yeah. He 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 took it to the edge, and if he needed to go further, he did, and either it paid off or it didn't. So yeah, the one yep. the one thing that was pointed out is, except for the race at Austin this year, which he crashed out of in the lead, he's either won or finished second in every single race this year. Yeah, yeah, that's the, like kind of the level of domination that he's had this year. The points difference between him and second and third place uh, was staggering. I mean, he, he, he's going to do phenomenal things in that sport. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's funny because the, 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 the field is actually pretty deep and it's a pretty big, uh, or pretty, pretty decent number of riders who've, who've also won or been on the podiums. It, it might even be close to a record number, but the problem is it's not the same people all the time. Right. So like Davizioso is supposed to be the guy who's challenging him for the title, but he hasn't been 
anywhere near as consistent this year. So Marquez may finish second, but then Dovey finishes fourth or fifth. So right. it doesn't help him any, right? So, yeah. but yeah, with Mark finishing either first or second every race, it's just been, been kind of a known factor. He was going to wrap this up, you know, even like two or three races ago. It was just a matter of, yeah. matter of time. I, I truly think that we are, you know, the, the names that I grew up with, Mike Halewood and Giacomo Agostini and people like that, that were so revered. I think we have a crop of riders that are probably more amazing in the level of talent they have. I realize that they have, you know, traction control and electronics on the bike and all kinds of aids and stuff, but it's still pretty darn amazing when you look at the kind of speeds that they are traveling. That's that I, I think we are truly in a golden age of GP, which we haven't for 20 years. I mean, I really haven't had much of an interest in 20 years. And I mean, even I like I grew up watching on, um, I actually never really got to watch the races, only see highlights on uh, motor week on TBS on mm-hmm. Saturdays or whatever, but like growing up kind of idolizing, uh, well, especially Eddie Lawson, but you know, Rainey and, and uh, Freddie Spencer and, and Kevin Schwantz in the in the eighties and then even the nineties with again Rainey and then the domination of Mick Dewan and a couple other guys throughout there. Um, the difference was especially in the two stroke era, like the difference between first to second or second to fourth or fifth could be like thirty and forty seconds. And now thirty and forty right. seconds covers almost the entire field at the checkered flag. So yeah. it's just it's not only the depth of the. Uh, of it and the quality, but just the bikes are so much closer in, in overall performance. It really shows who, who really is the best. I mean, yes, the best bike has a factor in, in who wins, but yeah, it's just, it's amazing to watch. I, I have to say that I, I find them mechanically less interesting. You know, I'm thinking of like 83, Kenny Roberts had this gigantic, super powerful Yamaha V4, that handled like a pig, but was a rocket ship. Freddie Spencer had a really underpowered, but really light and great handling Honda V3. And it was so cool to watch them when you knew both of them were struggling to uh, overcome the limitations of their machine. There was a little bit more of a chess match based on the fact that they were riding such different character machines. A lot of the bikes today... Not a lot of difference, especially when you go to Moto3 and they literally all have the same engine. You're like, yeah, yeah. it's almost a spec series. So I agree that it's really cool to see that many riders that close every race. But intellectually, I kind of miss the stories that go along with all of the different machines. I will I will disagree with you slightly in that yes we don't have like even back in the uh early 2000s when you had you know Honda V5 and V4s and inline 4s and things like that um I mean yeah Yamaha still runs an inline 4 I think yeah and Suzuki doesn't no Suzuki's running a V I can't remember now but the bike the different bikes do have very different characteristics like the Ducati is known for having all the horsepower and and being a bit of a pig to turn. In fact, they it's something they've been chasing for years and years and years. Or and the Yamaha and and now especially the Suzuki are maybe like the sweetest handling bikes, but they've been down on power. Yamaha, especially Suzuki's really made strides. Um, 
KTM is a bike that you can't ride smoothly. You literally have to wrestle that thing around like a super bike. Otherwise, it really doesn't handle well. So there's, in the way that the motors and the chassis and everything and, uh, work, there's still a lot of diversification. Um, but I guess maybe you have to, I don't know, I don't think I pay all that much attention to it anymore, but, or, or as in depth as I once did, but it's still, if you look there, there's an, there's, there is still some significant differences between, between the bikes. Yeah. And especially when you look at Aprilia who are like, will you just get out of the series or focus on world Superbike Cause you're never going to amount to anything here in MotoGP. So please go back and do, do what you're good at. Yeah. I guess what I miss about GP racing back in the day is it seemed like the riders really, at least visually, had to wrestle the bikes more uh, without the rider aids. Now, they're probably wrestling the bikes just as much as they did, but it's you, you can't really see it from from a viewer perspective. Um, some, of that, just, some of that is 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 TV related. And there was a good discussion about this, I, I think, is related to not only motorcycles, but cars, but what we really need to see, and yes, because it was it was talking about Formula One and how Formula One looks so effortless to drive, but if you actually see in car, they're they're like their hands are moving constantly. Yeah. Um, is that at current frame rates and the way things are shot, it looks slow. What you really need is almost like sixty FPS and four K, like gamers like to do stuff in. Yeah. Um, because that really gives you a mm. much more surreal vision of what's going on yeah um, and it's true because when you watch especially um like in moto gp uh, i think i was watching something recently and they showed um who was it uh rossi no it wasn't rossi somebody um was coming around a corner and just hit some of those you know the the little bumps on the apex of the corner and you saw the whole chassis get really upset and like it was a save the guy didn't go down but um, the bike just got so out of shape and you could see him trying to get the bike back under control, but it was only in slow motion that you really captured all of that. Um, watching it live, it just kind of looked like a little bobble. Uh, but so, yeah, I, I see what you're saying and it is a good point. <clears throat> uh, did you guys see it was posted on Jalopnik and Hooniverse linked to it. Somebody shot of like current formula one and i think they use like a 16 millimeter camera and then added mm. deliberately like really old timey narration yeah so it looks and feels and sounds like a 1960s documentary interesting but you realize you're watching this year's race i'll have to find that and i'll link to Send it to you guys yeah. and, and link to it. Uh, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I, I have seen there is a guy who goes to a couple of Formula One races a year with like a four by five camera. And if you understand what, if you just go Google what a four by five camera is, and that's not something that you shoot action with. Yeah. Some of his stuff, like it, like static stuff in the pits is like, is kind of cool. But when you actually see him shooting like cars on track with this thing, the images aren't great, but if you understand what it is, it is super cool to see what he can do with it. So yeah. different, but kind of like that, that same idea to give it like a vintage modern stuff, a real vintage feel. It was kind of cool. Yeah. I will, I will try to find that and I will post it on our Facebook page when I find that documentary because it was actually very, very cool to watch. And, uh, we'll 
call it for another month unless you guys got anything else you want to add or plug or suggest. Yeah, just uh, keep track of us on Facebook at the False Neutral, and I'll probably be posting a few more pictures here of the RZ as it nears completion. Uh, yeah. I'll have to go through and see if I can grab a couple photos of the of mine and its bit of disrepair and disassembly and throw them up there as well, probably after you do yours. Because mm-hmm. yours is actually showing progress. <laughs> slow, but it's getting there. Yeah. Okay, very good. Well, we'll see you all next month. Uh, As always, thank you to Eric and Garrett for spending the time to do this, and we will see you next episode. Well, good.